The following Roadshow podcast contains strong language and listener discretion is advised. Rowers tend to use invective and colourful language to explain even the simplest points. This Roadshow podcast is no exception. Goodness me, she's shown it, but crossing the line for the gold, Kim Crow of Australia, silver with Emma Twig of New Zealand, and Mirka Napkova of the Czech Republic takes bronze. And this is Kim Crow's first world championship win. Unbelievable. She's been second every year leading up to the Olympics last year uh, from the 2008 Games in the double, always playing second field to that incredible British double. But she's taken a chance in the single skull. She has worked so hard since the Olympics and she is world champion for the first time in her career. She did such a gutsy move. She knows her strengths and she played to them. She's not had the pace to contend with this woman, the Australian. Throughout uh, this season, Kim Crow has been absolutely dominant and the Victorian, well, beautiful sculler, beautiful technique. The way that body comes in in the second half of the stroke, Sarah. Yeah, it really is um, just such an effective style. She's a big, tall woman. Uh, we're about the same height. She's about 188 centimetres tall. Uh, and she's just raced so long and so well. And like I've said in some of her previous races, to me, she seems to be in the form of her life and certainly the form uh, that she was in when she won her 2013 World Championship. Kovacs just lifted her rating. They're right into their finishing burns now. Kim Crow well out in front. She's pretty safe. For the gold medal. It is Kim Brennan with clear water between herself and the rest of the field, but here comes Jemmy Stone over there in lane two for the United States. Kim Brennan still with the advantage. It's going to take the gold here for Australia. It's going to be Kim Brennan and then Jemmy Stone and Duan for the bronze. Emma Twig out of the medals. It is Australia one. Oh, what a race there from Australia. We knew she had the form. The questions have been asked. Would others put pressure on it? But she destroyed. Welcome to The Rose Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton. And Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks yeah, down barriers. Yeah, right. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Selfish role is high fit. Passion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Gold. Ultimate gold. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello ladies and gents, uh, welcome to another epic episode of The Rose Show. This is Lawrence. And this is Jake. And today we are talking to one of Australia's greatest rowers, Kim Brennan. Yeah, one of the world's greatest rowers, the I would say. The world's, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Kim, I mean, you. I, I feel like I don't really need to introduce her anymore. I feel like all the listeners out there really know who Kim is. She's done amazing things at the olympic games at international stage she's compute competed in array of different boat classes and overall you will get through the interview she's a thug she trains exceptionally hard and uh, is really the i don't know the athlete that's probably you aspire to be yeah i mean she's this maybe a perfect athlete i mean yeah. uh, she picked up rowing quite late after injuring herself in the on the athletics track 
and then basically she was using the ergo as a, a tool to to recover and rehab her her foot and the and she was training at the at the rowing center or at the the sports center where the rowers were training and she came in and the coaches were were watching her ergo and they were like holy shit this is someone when you get in a rowing boat so they quite quickly uh, encouraged her to get into the boat and basically from there she just rocketed to the top of the sport and she had some really really interesting uh, results and interesting turns in the sport you know she's had a very interesting career on like her early days yeah. on different boats that she rode she started off in sweep or then Australia scrapped the, the the sweep program so she went and she had to learn sculling and then she became one of the all time great scullers yeah. ever and along the way winning uh, doubling up at the yeah, at the London Olympics and yeah. winning two damn medals that is insane I think that's that's one of the highlights of the episode it's just the whole story and how that whole situation ended up that but she had not, to double up let's not give it let's not give it away that's a story awesome. that Kim needs to tell herself this is also a hugely requested interview that we've yes. had out of everyone that we've chatted to this is the number one person that always is at the top of the list people always want to listen to to Kim Brennan, so yeah, it's really cool to to be able to give back to to you guys to respond to to your requests and to to get someone that you really want to listen to. So really, really epic stuff. Mm. And also, the one thing I also found cool about Kim is that uh, she really shows that um, if you've got the discipline, discipline and the diligence, you can really balance uh, work life and 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 the student life. I don't know how she did it. But uh, you you can get a sense that she's a re- real hard worker because she she managed to balance uh, throughout the career. And Lauren said Kim will speak to you, uh, tell you about it more following. But uh, yeah, I think uh, she's really hits there as, as the hard worker. Yeah, I mean it's really a hard worker is an understatement. I think uh, we've had some we've had some exceptional athletes on the show. We've had some athletes that have raw natural talent or athletes that have trained really hard. And she just puts them all yeah, together, all together and puts them all to shame. I've never spoken to someone that is has the ability to to bash our training like uh, like Kim did. Yeah, so just really really interesting uh, chat with her. But uh, before we get going into the episode, Jakey, we've had some really cool feedback. So thanks everyone for for messaging us and getting hold of us over over the last uh, two weeks or so. When we put out we put out the bonus episode the hype train before the the european world champs uh, or european champs and then uh and then we put out the the regatta madness just discussing the results afterwards and we got some really cool feedback from that so everyone that mentioned us in their stories on instagram thanks very much and for the people that uh, responded and asked for the the prog sheet that we put out uh also really really cool stuff thanks uh for messaging us and interacting with us so Really, really cool. We also got some some really cool messages over the last uh, little while. A really cool message from uh, Chris. Uh, he just messaged us on Instagram just to say that we're doing cool stuff and just to add some some spice to some of the stuff that we missed. So we'll mention his new news uh, for the hype train coming into to uh, the second World Cup. Then we also had Miriam on Instagram. She said, "Hey Jack and Lawrence, uh, just to tell you that the show is brilliant. I listen to all of them." I would love to hear Go and uh, Jean-Christophe Roland. Thank you anyway for your awesome work. And she even gave us a kiss, Jake. Well there done. There we go. Um, I just want to comment there on... Uh, she the called us Jack and, Jack. and Lawrence. You I'll know? take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, you're obviously not a main aspect of the show because you can't even uh, get your name right. Yeah, but uh, it's cool. Cuts me deep. Miriam, it's all about that. It's all about the people we're interviewing and all about the content we're putting out. You don't have to worry about us. So uh, thanks very much. 
for the message. And then, yeah, or everyone else that just messaged us, thanks very much. Uh, let's not uh, keep you guys too long yeah. in the tooth. So just a reminder, go like us, our show, uh, give us a comment, get hold of us, uh, give us some feedback on uh, what we like, what you like in the show, what you don't like. Let us know anyone else who's now next on your on your most wanted list so we can uh, line up some new epic chats. Also, there's uh, the World Cup coming up this weekend. Mm. So that's the second World Cup. It's really big. Uh, has over 800 entries, so it's really really cool uh, to to see the big uh, the big dogs going at the, at the world stage again. So we'll give you a hype train and a regatta madness. So keep a listen and an eye out for for those episodes. Yeah, and uh, guys, enjoy the episode. So welcome to the Rose Show, everyone. Um, today we have Kim Brennan joining us from Australia. Kim, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, we're looking really looking forward to to getting into some of these results. We've been doing our research, and it's just uh, really, really awesome. We, yeah. we weren't even sure where to start. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been it's been quite a wild ride doing uh, looking at all the racing throughout your career. It's actually a little bit strange to be talking about rowing now because I feel so ridiculously unathletic. In fact, I tried to do some exercise today and got about five minutes in before I got interrupted by the bub. So um, credit to anyone out there who's uh, managed to come back to sport after having a baby. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure it's really tough, but I mean, the, there's no there's no doubt out there that uh, your athletic ability is without question <laughs> phenomenal. <sighs> used to be <laughs> yeah well we will have to agree to disagree but um to start to start the the interview off um what was really interesting about reading up on your your beginnings in sport is that you were actually a, a really proficient 400 meter hurdler before you joined rowing um and you had good success as a, as a junior you won a silver medal at your youth world championships you were australian junior champion and you were um, in looks like you were in the mix from what I can gather going towards 2006 Commonwealth Games, but you got an injury. Talk to us a little bit about the transition from getting that injury into rowing and how how you got into rowing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's quite an interesting story because I... I always did want to go to the Olympics and I always thought it would be in track and field. That was my absolute love. Um, I, I suffered a series of injuries, foot injuries, um, and had had surgery in 2005 um, and came out of surgery and was told by the surgeon that it hadn't been a success and I, I wouldn't be able to run again. Um, and I would have been 19 at the time um, and I just remember feeling feeling like that was absolutely the end, that my life was all downhill from there. It was all I'd ever wanted to do was go to the Olympics and um, that all of a sudden in just that one moment was gone. Um, and, I, and I remember just thinking at the time, oh, well, I guess I just, you know, keep going to uni and I'll, I'll go and study for a degree and then I'll go and work and, you know, I guess it'll be okay eventually. But it was just like that fire had gone out and that thing that makes you want to get up every day and, um, you know, be excited about being alive had, had just been taken away. Um, it was not long after that that I was doing some some rehab for my foot um, on a rowing erg. It was one of the few things that I could actually do um, because it was no impact on, on the bone. 
And um, I was in at the Victorian Institute of Sport and one of the rowing coaches would come and sort of stand behind the erg and, and watch me when I was um, when I was training. He didn't say much for a while, um, but then eventually he came over and he said, oh, you know, if you wanted to come out in a boat, um, we'd be happy to take you out in a boat. Um, so I... I took him up on the offer. I thought, why not? And I, I went down to the Yarra River. It was a freezing cold day. It was raining. Um, I remember, you know, getting a boat out, getting on the water, and I had no idea what to do. It was even though I'd been on an erg, I didn't realise you meant to use your legs in the boat. I fell in. It was it was awful. I hated it. That sounds awful. Um, that sounds so like that was, everyone started that, to rowing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my introduction to rowing. Um, but, you know, I went back and I, I kept going on the erg in the gym and, and then they said they were running a, a talent ID program um, for rowing at that stage. And um, I couldn't do most of the tests because of my foot, so I couldn't do the beep test and I couldn't do anything that involved um, fitness. And then my upper, upper body strength was terrible because as a – as a sprinter, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty light, um, not particularly strong. Um, and a 400-metre runner, it's all, you know, anaerobic. So I, other than the fact that I'm really tall, um, I probably wasn't their ideal candidate. But they clearly took pity on me and included me um, in their talent ID group. And um, I found myself down at Melbourne University Boat Club um, amongst a, a group of other new starters. Um, and we started rowing in an eight. And I loved it. It was um, all of a sudden I found like I had actually found my home. And it wasn't because of the the sport at that early stage. It was because of the community and the people. And I just loved the boat club and I loved the people I was rowing with. And I loved trying to learn something new. So that was really um, how I ended up getting in a boat. Flip, that's a really cool cool start to the sport and also um because it's quite funny when you say that like you weren't the ideal candidate at the the talent id program because we just spoke to um heather standing the other week and she also went through the talent id program and was also like right at the bottom like just scraping uh scraping through on the like height she said she had to stand on her tippy toes to make the yeah. the height thing and then <laughs> obviously from there also like just coming online and just uh doing really cool stuff so um Quite similar. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very cool. And then, so, yeah, so then you get in the eight and, I mean, you 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 kind of rock it off from there. So, because, uh, I mean, it's not long after that that you, you're going in, I mean, you get into the, the whole uh, national team, Australian national team, and start to, to race your first uh, international regattas. And then, and those are both, that's getting into the women's pair and into the women's eight in 2006. So talk us through that first year of like uh, of your first uh, international competitions because obviously you missed out on the the juniors and the under twenty threes, so like it's thrown right into the deep end. Yeah, well, I actually so I was I was still under twenty three at that stage, and I um, so I'd been rowing for four months and went to the national championships and. Uh, we won the under-23 pair there. Um, and at that stage, um, they said, okay, well, you've you've qualified for the selection trials. And I nominated for the under-23 team. 
um, but they run the under-23 trials um, with the the senior A trials. Um, and we ended up coming fourth in the open pair um, and then seat raced my way in the fours into the eight. Um, so there was a little issue at the time in that I hadn't nominated for the senior team. Um, I'd been rowing by trials for six months at that stage, so it wasn't something that was on the radar. It was... Um, it was all happening very, very fast, but found myself on on the Australian team, and that was that was actually really challenging because I was training for rowing like I would train for track and field. So my idea of um, sessions, I'd do things like um, 10 40 second pieces on the ergo, and that would be training. So very anaerobic based. Um, none of this, you know, Ks and um, and quantity of training. Um, so when I moved up to Canberra where the training centre was, um, it was a lot of blisters, um, a lot of fatigue, um, a real challenge in, um, I guess, getting used to the aerobic aspect of rowing. Um, and I remember getting overseas for the first time um, and my first race at a World Cup was in the pair and I had no idea about a start system. I had no idea how you did a warm-up on a course. Um, I'd only raced at courses that had a separate warm-up lake. Um, I, I didn't – I just didn't know. People would say things like put your hands on the gunnels and I didn't know what they meant and I felt – I actually felt really overwhelmed. Um, but I had, I had a great – pair partner um sarah cook who i i wrote the pair with for many years and she was incredibly um supportive and you know helped helped me learn um i always loved the racing aspect of it but i think it was also a pretty challenging year because the australian women's eight had actually won the world championships the year before um and so very high expectations on on how the eight would perform and I remember the World Championships, um, you know, pretty much being told before the race, you know, don't don't mess it up. This is this is on you if we if we don't do well. And we ended up coming third, um, and in hindsight, should have been absolutely wrapped with a bronze medal um, in my first year of rowing. But I remember just that the feeling in the crew was people were devastated. Um, and it was only years later that I really appreciated how special um, that bronze medal should have been. Um, and in a lot of ways, I can look back and see that it was um, a fantastic learning curve. But at the time, I just was so desperate to be better um, that I actually found that really challenging. Yeah, I mean, I can I can just imagine, and I mean, the amount of racing that you you did that season it's is insane. really really crazy, and so your learning curve of uh, how the starts work and all of that must have uh, must have been extreme. And then it's also interesting that like um, I think the the perception of of the third place, like coming the team coming off a win the year before, makes the ex- or the expectation of the next year so much higher. Whereas then, as you say, after a long time, you can really appreciate the the third place because it still is really really impressive now, especially for a debut season um and then yeah uh, uh, 
because I don't I don't think um, medaled at a world championships again for another four or five years. So um, really should have enjoyed that at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's uh, we'll 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 get into that later. But um, another thing I've noticed uh, speaking to a lot of other rowers that have started in the sport kind of late. I know you were you were still very young, but I mean you joined in the system. You didn't row at school. And you joined the system at quite an elite level. And speaking to a lot of rowers in the past, a lot of the feedback we get is that even if you start at quite an elite level, the greatest thing is is because you're so hungry to learn, you're getting um, you're getting access to really really elite knowledge. Like everyone you're rowing with has been there for a while. You have the best coaches in the country. You know everyone's more mature than they would be when they were younger. So you really have this golden nugget of knowledge and technique and uh, culture to draw upon. Chat to us a bit about going into a rowing program relatively young and inexperienced, but that hunger to learn and being given the opportunity to uh, have access to this kind of um, kind of source of, of information. Yeah, look, you, you're spot on because I was so lucky in that. Um, so at Melbourne Uni Boat Club, um, I turn up and been rowing less than a week. And Peter Anthony, who won a gold medal in the double skull in '92, um, was the president of, of Melbourne Uni. And um, you know, within a week of being at the club, he was taking me out in a double skull and and teaching me how to row. Um, Ian Wright was the head coach at Melbourne Uni at that time, and he put me in the bow seat of the men's eight and just tell me to hold on. Um, so from the moment I started, I had the opportunity to um, row with the best, learn from the best. Um, I, I could see what the standard was and just had um, the people around me to um, – just be an absolute sponge um, and just learn as much as I could. And I think that's one of the advantages of having the maturity um, and the understanding of how to train and that real desire and the, you know, the fire that this is something that you really want and that insatiable willingness to learn but also access to the opportunity of those brilliant people to learn from. Um, and I, I guess I was really fortunate um, almost not to have gone through a school program where you can pick up some bad habits and you um, you can, you know, perhaps get a bit lost in the system. It was it was never like that for me. I was really surrounded by just tremendous people. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Um, then go into a bit on, on the – how come there was so much doubling up? So, like, why in the first year are you racing – the women's pair and the women's eight. Why not just uh, get into the eight and and stay focused on one event? Why do why were you guys doing so much uh, pair and eight? That's a really great question. <laughs> um, I think the the culture of rowing in Australia is at, at the time was quite a small boat culture. Um, so we did a lot of our training in the pairs, um, and I think it was about really you know learning a lot about the boat feel and how to move a boat in a smaller boat um and then jumping into the bigger boats but it it definitely um you know particularly at a world cup where you'd be doing um, multiple races in a day um a, a pretty a pretty tough ask and um maybe it was um Maybe it was a bit much for, for some young athletes at the time. But um, I, I think you do – it does accelerate your your learning curve. And um, it was it was just the philosophy at the time. 
Yeah, and, and and I think also, I mean, what's what's really impressive if you've looked at the World Cup uh, regattas, especially um, for all the listeners out there at a World Cup regatta, the the regattas hosted over three days. At World Champs, you have a week, but in a World Cup, you only have three days. So if you're doubling up, that means you have to do. Uh, heats probably on the same day uh, for two different events plus you have rapid charges the next day if you don't make it through and then on the third day you have to do a final again for two events so it's a lot of finals and semi-finals I've missed semi-finals completely (laughs) but it's a lot of racing so I can imagine I mean it's quite tough it's a heavy stressful environment but I can imagine you must you must definitely develop a bit of grit going through all of that I think what it teaches you is it doesn't actually matter in a rowing race. It doesn't matter what you feel, as in it doesn't matter if you feel good or you feel bad, you still got a race. And I think that's a lesson that became really important later in my career is, you know, you get older and your body gets creaky and you don't feel as amazing and you'll often do a warm-up and your legs feel heavy and you're breathing hard and you do a, a longer pace before you start and you think, oh, my gosh, I feel exhausted after that. There's no way I'm going to be able to do two kilometres. And I think what that teaches you, it doesn't really matter what you feel. <laughs> um if you just focus in on what it is that you have to do and do it anyway. Um, That's the important bit of racing, of really just letting, um, getting your mind out of the way um, and and going out there and rowing as well as you can and putting as much of yourself on the line as you can, irrespective of if you feel fresh or if you feel fantastic or if you've had a great night's sleep or if you haven't or if you're a bit injured or if you're not Um, because you're you're never going to be feeling perfect on the start line of a race yeah and i think that's that's actually really really important wisdom out there for a lot of athletes because i think a lot of times especially when anyone when it comes to big days it couldn't can be outside of sport as well but in sport when it comes to world champs olympic games like i feel like your your attention becomes so much more focused on how you're doing when you're in that week of competition because of how important every single day is and sometimes that heightened focus on on things like am I am I am I feeling 100% today or 90% can take detract take your attention away from the job at hand and that's to to race like to get through that race and like you said you don't have to you know the the, the best athletes out there are doing it on the worst days they do making it through they're winning the the races on the worst days regardless of how they're feeling physically it's irrelevant information. It's, you know, it's still a race. You're all still starting at the same time as everyone else in the race. So go out there and race it. It doesn't matter if you you don't feel 100%. Yeah, and I also think like a lot of people watching Olympics or watching sport, like they don't realize that all the time. Like you're watching it and you're just thinking that uh, these athletes are basically just machines that yeah. can, can churn out the performances again and again. But there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes and... And all of those little things are, are playing big parts in. But then, to take us through, so 2007, you qualify the eight and the pair for, for the Games, uh, for the Be- uh, the Beijing Olympics. And then moving on to the next year, you you go straight into the pair and, there's, uh, and you, you don't race the eight in uh, 2008. So talk us through that transition and, uh, and how that, uh, that the beginning of that year was. Yeah, so, I mean, the the origin of that is at the 2007 World Champs. Now, um, in the pair, uh, we lead the field for, I think, the first 1,750 metres. 
and I caught a crab about 200 metres before the finish line. Um, And so, you know, a couple of things from that. One of them was that we've got a lot of potential um, as a a pair combination. Um, But the other one was the, I, I guess, still being very new to rowing and not doing a good job of holding it together under duress and pressure and, um, you know, also feeling um, it's almost like an unsaid thing in rowing that you don't talk about that and it's, um, you know, oh, my gosh, you caught a crab and, and it's it, everyone's talking about it but no one's talking about it to you. And I actually found that really hard, um, feeling this guilt um, for, you know, essentially meaning we didn't get a medal, we ended up in fourth place. Um, and, and so that was a little bit tough at the time. Um, the eight race was a very tight race, but I think the excitement of the potential that we had in the pair, um, we really wanted to, to take that through to, to Beijing. Um, fast forward a, a year and um, Sarah, who I'd been rowing with, had broken her rib in the off-season and I'd been rowing with a, a, a different athlete and been going really fast and so that dynamic was difficult because the coaches were sort of going oh do we select that pair or that pair or do we put them in the eight and it was very it was very political ended up back in the pair with Sarah but the seating was swapped and um you know I probably didn't have the confidence to be to be stroking a boat um and we just we just weren't as good um with with that combination and so didn't perform as well at the first world cup um went back and and did what rowers typically do when you don't have a great performance and and we trained crazily hard um and and both of us got injured um kept training through it and and again it was kind of the situation of um didn't want to be replaced in the boat so you know I was I was I had tendonitis and was rowing with a wrist brace on and um Sarah had trouble with her knee and um and and was still training through that and we just we were doing so many k's and we're doing so much work but the quality of it was was really poor because we were both (laughs) we were both injured and we, we get to the games and um it was just we were so we were so desperate to do well um, that it was like every time we got on the water, we were trying to reinvent how we rode. Um, all of the the natural flow and um, just desire to get out there and race was kind of stripped away, um, and and we ended up finishing last at at the Olympics, and it was it was pretty devastating because you you do you invest so much passion and energy in something and we genuinely felt that we were a realistic medal chance and it just the season couldn't have gone worse um and and I think in a lot of ways that experience was was really formative for me because a number of things happened through that one of them was that I realized that rowing isn't just a physical sport I think up until that point my whole approach was if I train harder and race more intensely than anyone else I can be the best Um, and it became apparent that that rowing is actually not just a physical sport 
Um, there's so much more to it. And that was a very hard place to, to learn that lesson. But the other thing that I really learned, um, I remember watching, so the men's double skull at, at that Olympics. So Scott Brennan and, and David Crochet, they'd been in the quad skull four years earlier, um, as favorites to win the gold medal. And, um, and ended up in the B final. And I'd, I'd watched their journey over the four years and, and how they worked together as a team and how they rode and just the intensity of focus and the professionalism that they brought to their training. And, um, and in that, I saw a bit of a blueprint of this is how you do it. This is how you work with your coach. This is how you work with your teammates. This is how hard and how focused you need to train. This is the attention you need to have to to detail. And and so I think it was as um, as hard as it was at the time. It was a really important moment for me um, to I guess work out what the future could hold. Yeah, I'll flip. I mean, it's, it can just hear it's difficult to to even speak about it, and yeah. it's such a, a tough time of your your career. But even just the way you speak about it is like much more about learning and and progressing rather than just like oh my word, like this is a disaster, and I never want to think about it again. Then, so then talk about like the transition now into the next year. So like you you had this this really really difficult year, and uh, how do you get back onto your feet and uh, approach 2009 you know that after the olympics is always often quite a, a depressing a time yeah, for a, for a lot tough, of athletes it's a tough time so how did you sort of uh, do that transition back into to another olympic cycle look i think at the time i still had a lot of bitterness in me i felt um i felt that i'd been let down by by the system um I moved home from from Canberra. I moved back to Melbourne um, to to finish off my uni. But I I pretty much started training the day after the Olympics, um, and it was I, I think I was I was training without really knowing where I was going. I spent a lot of time with Ian Wright that year, just. Um, you know, really working on my sculling, which I hadn't, I pretty much hadn't done since that first day that I got in the single and fell in. Um, so we spent a lot of time out on, on the Yarra just um, working on my technique and my ability to stay in the boat. Um, but again, I got, I got injured um, before nationals and I wasn't able to go to nationals um and the only way I could get to selection trials was to jump back in a pair um jump back in a pair with Sarah we went and won selection trials and uh, went away in a pair that year um and yeah it was we, we actually had a good year um but ended up fifth at the at the world championships and um I, I think at that time, Rowing Australia were going through a fair bit of change um, and they changed the focus of the women's rowing program. Um, they essentially scrapped the sweep program and they said everyone's going to skull. Um, so after that year, it was it was a pretty big shift. So we we're all put in, in singles. Um, I remember not being all that... Uh, <laughs> all that excited about it I absolutely hated the single um and I wasn't very good at it so um it was it was a little bit of a 
um, tough pill to swallow yeah, initially, that, that sort of scraping crazy. into the final at the national championships. Um, but I I managed to seat race my way into the double skull um, that next year, and um, my doubles partner then broke her rib. Um, common theme here: I had a lot of parent doubles partners who had broken ribs, um, <laughs> but went away to the Munich World Cup, and um, and I was petrified because. Um, Poor Kerry had had broken her rib, couldn't race, um, and so I was going to race my first international sculling race in a single skull, um, which was I remember getting on the water again the first time, um, tried to push off the pontoon and fell in. Um, so <laughs> wasn't the, the oh, best start, but um, through that through that regatta, I, I so in the heat, um, I didn't progress from the heat. I had to race the the repercharge that afternoon. Um, I improved in the repercharge um, and then backed up the next day and raced the semi-final. And I just remember being so in, um, just so focused on what I was doing and just trying to row the boat as well as I could and thinking about my length and my rhythm. And I had no idea how I was going. And I remember hearing my coach yelling at me on the side of the side of the course. It's like, oh, come on, come on, go. And it's like, What's he yelling at me for? I'm going to make the final. And I was super chuffed. Um, and then I look over at the end of the race and I was, you know, pretty much neck and neck with a Katarina Carsten who was absolutely the um, the standout leader of sculling at that time. And I think that that was the moment that I was like, oh, maybe I could be quite good at this. Um, <laughs> so it was, it, was a, it was a huge surprise. But... Um, I think that gave me a little bit of confidence that maybe this sculling thing was going to turn out okay. I mean, it's it's uh, that is absolutely crazy. I mean, I can't believe like because uh, it was a big question for us. It's like why you changed from uh, from the pair to from sweep rowing to sculling, mm. and then to have the whole women's team shift to sculling. I mean, that must have just. I mean, you you've only been rowing for um, for three three or four years, and now you just get thrown straight back into mm. the deep end. And uh, have to to go and basically start in the beginning almost from the, from the sculling side, but then also to to dish up such a good uh, performance first up yeah. in the skull is is really really impressive. Yeah, and I think I think your you, what you were speaking about earlier about not worrying too much about your how you're feeling and just getting the race done. I think that's a perfect example. Like um, just go going out there and getting it done. Like even if you, fall, if you, if you even if you fall in off the pontoon, just focusing on on the race at hand and I think your your doubling up that you've been doing in the past probably helped you a lot through that repercharge because I think a lot of athletes that had probably not been used to so much racing probably would have taken more of a knock getting through that rep. Yeah, I, I think it I think it did and just really just the attitude of learning something from each race. Um, it, it's actually it's interesting thinking back on it because I wasn't phased at all at the time it's sort of okay I haven't made it through the heat here's what I didn't do well here's what I can fix here's what I'm going to work on lined up for the rep got some of those things better okay here's what I didn't do well here's what I could do better here's what I want to work on lined up for the semi-final and I think that approach um, more than anything else is what what held me in good stead um, to make it through regattas where things you know often don't always go to plan yeah and I think also 
on another thing, that year was was quite crazy because you you came third in the in the second World Cup in the skull, which was incredible. Then next World Cup, you got back in the double. You guys came second, and then at World Champs later, you came second in the double, but you also doubled up in the quad. So in that year, you raced internationally in three different bow classes. You won a medal in every except for except for the quad, but you won a medal in the single and the double. So chat to us a bit about chopping and changing in so many different bow classes, and and why did you guys race in the quad at World Champs? So uh, that year was there were three of us who were a very similar speed. Um, so Kerry, who had broken her rib um, before the first World Cup, Sally Keo, who I raced um, the second World Cup in the double with, um, and myself. And so three doesn't fit into two very well. Um, and. Brooke Prattley was returning um, from having time off um, and and so the decision was made to to boat a quad. Um, the I, I mean that it is difficult the quad is quite a different boat to row um, to a double. Um, and I actually think you know the doubling up in a in a pair and an eight is maybe a little bit easier to do than a, a double in a quad um, just because that rhythm, um, is, is quite different. Um, and, you know, on paper, we were, a, we should have been a great quad. Um, it didn't really come off. Um, but it was, it was a great learning experience about, um, the different feel of boats and the different roles in different seats of boats. And, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty, pretty interesting regatta with some of the conditions in, in Carapiro that year as well. Yeah, so it's. Uh, I thought you just rode the the quad to get all the Olympic events under your belt. Because yeah. <laughs> you you've been rowing for four years, and by the the end of twenty ten, you've raced all the female uh, women's events yeah. at, uh, at an international competition. <laughs> so uh, at least you're getting all the experience in yeah. early. Got got to find out what you like. Yeah, no, that's that, that's that's very true, and then. Uh, coming into then you're coming into 2011 and you know just like this year 2011 the year before the games it's 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 quite a you know the the the, the pressure steps up another rung in the ladder it's not the Olympics yet but this year is when you when you get your spot um, chat to us a bit about that year you guys you guys came in and you did really well getting a second a, a silver medal at the World Cup three and a silver medal at the World Champs um, focusing on the double so maybe chat to us a bit about uh, having a chance to to focus in on on one boat and also having such a good season the year before the games must be in a huge confident confidence boost. Yeah, look, it was. Um, it was twenty eleven was a really, I, I guess, consistent year. Um, we got some we got some great training under our belt and and had some good solid good solid races. Um, it's actually funny because I don't recall feeling the additional pressure of a pre-Olympic year. And I think this was a little bit of a carryover from 2007 as the qualification year. Um, I was still so new to the sport. I didn't understand this whole, you know, qualification system thing. And so it was just going out there and racing as, as hard as you could race and doing as well as you could do. And, um, I remember feeling that in 2011 as well, and I probably didn't um, didn't experience that feeling of oh gosh, um, 
what do we do about qualification? But I think that was something that I realised, um, you know, later in my career when a lot of teammates were, were trying to qualify eights and, and a number of boats that you see just the the ramp up of pressure at, at that um, pre-Olympic regatta. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I suppose it is a little bit different when you when you're boxing for for medals at the front of the pack. Then the the qualification sort of gets done in the in the semi-finals, not necessarily as big because I mean we often speak about the how those B finals at an Olympic qualification event are absolute yeah, madness, madness. Uh, for those last few yeah, spots. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I guess it was a very yeah. um, very privileged position to be in. But then, okay, so you qualify 2011 in the double, and then the next year is a, a roller coaster, a roller coaster <laughs> and a really, really interesting year. So um, you, you've qualified in the double, and then I think you can talk us through 2012 and, and how that all panned out. <laughs> what on earth happened? We're not even yeah, sure. We're not sure. <laughs> we're not sure how that all happened. Yeah. So, so 2011, I raced the double with... Kerry Hoare. 2012 um, at the selection trials, it was a very close selection trial and I was actually selected in the double with Brooke Prattley. Um, and about, and Kerry was selected in the quad. Um, about oh, a week or two after selection trials, um, Brooke broke her rib um, really badly. Um, so she was out of the boat and um, we initially were backing her in to, um, to be back in the boat, um, but her recovery wasn't, um, wasn't going to plan and it was getting, um, it was starting to get a bit closer to us going overseas and we started worrying about actually is Brookie going to be back in time for the for the Olympics. Um, and at that stage, we made the decision to have a crack at the qualification regatta in the single. Um, essentially, it is a backup plan. Um, I had my heart set on the double with Brooke. Um, it was such a special combination and, and I loved I loved her rhythm and I loved rowing that boat with her and um, the way she was going about her rehab was incredible. Um, but it was just a, oh gosh, we need, we need something in case um, in case this doesn't come off. Um, went to the qualification regatta, um, probably, well, definitely exceeded my expectations there, um, qualified the boat. Um, now, the complexity that comes yeah. with qualifying a boat at the qualification yeah, regatta uh, is you have to race it yeah, at it's the a, Olympics. It's a, it's a, it's a um, tricky thing. Yeah, and I think just for the, so for the listeners, so if you qualify at the, the World Champs the year before, there's usually around 11 spots yes. and once and that's the boat that qualifies so once the boat's qualified the coaches and the the the, the, the team can change the crew around yeah. and, and do it but if you qualify at late qualification there's only two spots available and if you qualify there you have to go through and race the games in that car in, in that combination or that crew that you you qualified through there yeah so there was a period of time where you could knock back the qualification spot, um, but Brooke was still out of the boat when that time was going to lapse. So we really, um, we had to accept it. Um, so I was in the position that if Brooke would make it back, race the single and the double, um, 
and if she wasn't able to make it back in the boat, then it would just be the single. Um, my heart was absolutely in the double. Um, and so when she was back in the boat just before the Munich World Cup, um, it was very much, you know, focusing back in on the on the double and, and that project that we'd been working towards. Um, but it did mean that there were quite a few races at the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, because actually, because that was what was, uh, that makes a lot more sense to me because I was, I was wondering because you'd raced the 2011 uh, World Champs with Kerry and then uh, and then suddenly only at the World Cup 3 are you coming on with uh, with Brooke but actually you'd raced the beginning of the 2012 season with Brooke so that makes sense that then she got injured you went into the skull and then she made it back into into the double um, yeah and then your your London Olympics wow. was pretty was pretty wild I mean that was uh, what six big races uh, yeah, and then for the listeners out there, Kim Kim went to the London Olympics, doubled up um, at the the biggest sporting stage in the world, and she came off with a bronze medal in the uh, women's single skulls, and then a silver medal in the women's double skulls. So, Kim, chat to us a bit about the the London Games. I can imagine it must have been crazy doing two events, but the feeling, especially considering what the two thousand and eight Olympics must have been like, of coming away with two medals, must have been fantastic. Uh, the the London Games were just so special. Um, I think, you know, the team of, of Lyle McCarthy, our coach, and, and Brooke was was incredible. Like, Brookie couldn't have been more supportive of, of me in the single, which made a huge difference. Um, she, was, she was a great um, training partner when, you know, I was doing my pieces in the single and uh, just an amazing doubles partner as well. Um, and I think what was pretty special about that regatta and something that is um wonderful about rowing um in the double skull final um you know everyone goes into a race and you want to win it you genuinely do and um our our whole campaign that four-year campaign was about knocking off the brits um but the reality was that we had the best race we could have hoped for and they were an exceptional crew and i think sometimes having that really special moment of hey, we actually, we did it. Like, you know, Brookie's back in the boat. We raced an amazing race. Um, We've won a silver medal that we're so proud of Um, and we're standing on the dais alongside, you know, one of the best crews ever to have taken the water and, um, you know, a really, really special feeling. Yeah, I mean, really, I just so epic. And I, I mean, we, we often, um, I mean, even this weekend, uh, recently we raced the, the national champs and like just to put out a good race is like, is often enough, like regardless of the outcome, if you can deliver what you've trained for, what you've like planned to and what you like can actually perform, then that always uh, yeah. is almost, yeah, like obviously the win or, or, or the result is, is big, but if you can put out a race that you can be proud of, then it always makes you feel a whole, whole lot better than uh, than when you don't. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then, so coming away with uh, with two medals at at London was was awesome. But now he has he has the 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 big uh, Olympic cycle coming up. Two thousand and sixteen Olympic campaign. You get into the single skull. Twenty thirteen. You go to the first World Cup and you win it. You go to the third World Cup and you win it. And then you go to the World Champs and you become a World Champion in the single skulls. And that's the first time 
you you became a world champion in your career. That must have been talk to us about getting into the single and then doing so well that season and coming away with a perfect uh, a perfect record in 2013. I guess you know at, after the the London Games, um, Brookie was always going to retire. Um, so it was it was very much the plan to go into the single. I couldn't imagine having had such a good experience rowing with her, wanting to row in a boat with anyone else. <laughs> um, and I, I loved the idea of the challenge of of the single as a boat that I traditionally hated so much um, and that scared the shit out of me and <laughs> actually just wanting to take that on and seeing what I could make of it. Um, that first year was really... It was quite a free year, as in, so Lyle, my coach, and I was just about, you know, how do I row this boat and um, how do I race and what's natural? And so it was it was a learning year, but it was also just an opportunity to get some good races under my belt and, um, and enjoy the challenge. Um, I guess one of the things that I, I hadn't really – dealt with up until that time in my career um, was external pressure around my performance. Um, I think being pretty, you know, quite an unknown um, beyond the world of rowing um, in a lot of ways is a blessing. And and then after the London Olympics, um, all of a sudden you're in the the public domain and people expect you to be doing well all the time. And, um, and, and that was particularly so after 2013. And and I think that was a learning curve as well. And maybe one that I hadn't, um, I hadn't fully anticipated at the time, but, um, yeah, South, South Korea was, was very special. Um, that was a great experience too in, you know, getting over there and it was hot. Yeah, sort of getting used to the conditions and, and still getting out there and racing well. So I think some of some of that mindset training around it doesn't matter if you don't feel good, you got to go out there and race anyway was actually really good for me at that stage. So um, how was training going like the shift from like because uh, i mean you speak about it right at the beginning where you like the reason that you loved rowing straight away was because you had this awesome team you were in this big eight and like the other the rest of the girls around you were just really like the vibe was really good so talk us about the change then into the into the single where you're training by yourself and uh it's it's a completely different world almost uh how did you you manage with the the actual training in the single i think um I mean, we realised right from the outset that it would be a real challenge, and so there. I always, I always had a squad. Um, I always had a team around me. I had training partners and um, and you know other crews who, you know, were were my people in my team. So so even though I might be alone in my boat, um, I didn't feel that it was a lonely sport and I actually think in some ways the team the teammanship that you need to have with your coach in a single skull um, is is particularly unique and it's really special building that relationship and that project um, over time um, 
I mean, I, I think I changed as a person as well. Um, I came to um, enjoy, I guess, the solace of the single and, and the challenge of trying to be a be a master of rowing and really you know understand the creative beauty of the sport so not just the physicality and not just the technique but really the art of of how to to row a boat and move it well and I think that different challenge um, was something that kept me really interested even though I didn't have that excitement and rah-rah feel of of innate around me I think you just uh, settled a, a long-standing argument between me and Jake. Uh, we we have been debating. It's even on uh, one of our episodes on uh, this the difference between the eight and the the single. And uh, Jake always backs the eight, but I said that the the single is uh, <laughs> is the king of it. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a heated argument. <laughs> they're both very special boats for quite different reasons yeah very very different reasons and um kim in 2013 another small well probably not so small to you but uh when we were when we were going through i mean i noticed that the first world cup uh in 2013 was in sydney um and and i mean winning a gold medal in sydney at your first world in the first world cup must have been quite a special feeling you know doing so well on home on home territory it, it was. I also remember that regatta being really tough. So that regatta would have been quite early early in the season. And so we're in a really heavy training block and it's also our national championships. So the World Cup was on the back of our nationals where raced singles, doubles, fours, eights, um, and then you back up and race a World Cup. Um, so it was very exciting. And it was also completely exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I can. It sounds like it must have been quite a, quite a, quite a rough ride. Um, and then, and then, just going forward, one of the big, I think, if you look at the women's skull going into 2000, 2016 final race, one of the big talking points, I think, would have been the rivalry that you had with Emma Twig. And I think, you know, it, it, the big, a big year where there was a lot of, lot of talking points was twenty fourteen. That must have been quite quite a tough year, but I'm sure the 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 racing there must have been so much. Um, you know, I often find when when it gets really competitive, it brings out the best in 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 the individual, and that must have been a really competitive year against Emma. Chat to us a bit about 2014, uh, going against Emma in in the skull. Oh, it was it was a fantastic year, and I think um, you know a really important year in in my development i think it's very easy in an olympic cycle to um to almost get a little bit carried away and um forget how much hunger you had to get to where you are um and 2014 comes along and um you know some brilliant races by emma and i I think it, it taught me a lot of things but one of the things that it really taught me was the importance of sticking to your guns. Um, I think one of the mistakes that I did make in 2014 after the first World Cup was was thinking, oh, no, I got beaten, I've got to train harder. Um, and, and that was kind of the theme of the year. Um, I just trained harder, harder, harder. Um, and the actual volume, quantity, quality of training in that year was, was pretty crazy. Um, and, and to be honest, I think I was... I was definitely overtrained, um, 
but it does it does teach you how much you can endure um, and how much you can do. And I think the learning at the end of the year was really coming back to the fact that you've also got to be able to read your body um, and and know when when it's too much and when you're just doing something out of stubbornness um, and almost this emotional feeling of I need to do more rather than um, sticking to the plan about how you want to row your boat and how you want to train. Um, And so in some ways, 2014, um, I, I I came back after 2014 and just spent a few months just paddling light around the lake um and that really and and playing in the boat so um practicing you know how far you can how many reverse feather starts you can do before you fall in and um you know practicing blade skills and just really enjoying the feeling of rowing um knowing that the capacity to train hard is there, um, but coming back to, to what I loved about the sport. Um, so I think really being able to um, not throw the baby out with the bathwater when a result doesn't go your way. Yeah, I really, yes, there's a lot of, a few things there that uh, that we can get into. I really, yeah. really enjoy that. Like, I love the, I mean, we often speak about it in our team as well. It's like trusting the process of like uh yeah once like you know it doesn't always go your way but like then you can't just suddenly make a huge change on 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 what you're trying to do and you've got to trust that the the, the, the long-term uh goal that's that's at uh that counts um yeah so that's really really big i think to to not uh and then to overdo it like that as well i mean like uh talk about the, that sort of training like how how many K's and stuff were you were you doing at that point? Like to to what is over what it was overdoing it for you? So I would probably do. I'd get up. I'd do um, my warm up before training. Would be I'd do you know a thirty or forty minute run, twenty minutes on the erg, get on the water for twenty five to thirty K. Um, get off the water. I'd go and do a um, two two and a half hour hill spark ride. Get back. Um, well after lunch the cook would save me we're over at the european training center the cook would save me lunch i'd go and eat that have you know half an hour off get into the gym two hours in the gym out of the gym um down and do um 90 minutes of power strokes and it would be you know seven or eight o'clock at night um sleep repeat and then um, so, so you're saying that a lot of your doubles partners had injuries <laughs> Yeah, so to keep it was up with um, you. probably not training smart. Yeah, but I, I mean, like, I think there's there's always there's always value in in both sides of the coin, and I think uh, you know if I just look at athletes coming up, or um, when you look at the philo- ph- philosophy of of how to approach training, I always believe it rather rather be on on the one side of the fence when you're going too hard than on the other side of the fence where you're your general tendency is doing too little because it's, I, f- I feel it's much easier to teach someone that is a bit of a firebrand to kind of t- get it, get a bit more, um, pull it back, pull it back a bit rather than someone that's uh, maybe a little bit lazy to be a little then bit more ambitious. The, the other thing I want to ask though is like, so, okay, so 
how did you deal with uh, like injuries? Did you were you prone to to getting uh, any particular injuries, or, or did you have any sort of habits that uh, that help prevent you from uh, from hurting yourself? Yeah, so the, I mean that that's the other thing with getting old is when I was younger, um, I could I never did any stretching, I never did any warm up, I could do as much training as I liked, and I wouldn't get injured. Um, but then. Yeah, back. My back was was a big problem from 2012 through to 2016. Um, so 2013, I actually spent a lot of the year injured, um, and in a lot of ways, that was good for me because it did pull me back a bit. But it also made me um, focus a lot about how I was rowing um, and how I was loading and, um, my understanding of my body and, um, connecting through the kinetic chain and, and the type of strength work I'd do in the gym to be functional as opposed to just pure strength work. And, um, we, we learned a lot over those four years about the things that would set my back off. Um, I pretty much stopped erging, um, from 2012 to 16, um, I would get on the stationary erg to do our um, compulsory erg tests and that would be it. Um, I did a lot more Pilates-type work. Um, I would switch rows to, to bike rides if I was starting to get um, to get a bit sore. Um, so I think it was also starting to develop a bit of that maturity around uh, managing my body a little bit better and, and listening a bit more. Yeah, so uh, I think that's uh, such an important theme yeah. for for athletes as they get, especially if they want to have a long career, they have yeah. to understand that like they can't just uh, you know throw dash it out the whole the time. They have to like sort of adjust and and learn how to how to deal with uh, with the setbacks and also deal with uh, the body as it changes. Yeah, I think also you know this it reminds me we actually spoke to Drew Ginn. Um, last year he was one of our episodes and I think a, a big theme of, on his episode because I'm sure you're aware that he he battled with injury in his career and one of his his best races in in 2008 at the at the uh, Beijing Olympics he did the whole week with a, uh, a slip disc yeah. or a fractured disc so I think yeah. a big a big uh, theme around his interview was just talking about injuries and how to deal with them but also on on the on the flip side the lessons learned from you know, going through that kind of process. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there's two parts to that because um, similar to what we were talking about before, I do remember Lucerne World Cup in 2013. Um, I hadn't been able to row leading up to that World Cup um, and couldn't travel with the team to the World Cup because my back um, was not functional, um, but still lined up, still raced and had a fantastic regatta. Um, and I think what that teaches you, again, is that you don't need to have had the perfect preparation um, and you don't need to be feeling 100%. Um, you just need to do the best job you can do on the day. Um, and I think that gives you a lot of confidence to, to put aside some of the, the anxieties and the stress and to, to realise that when you've got you know, eight, ten years of training under your belt, you can afford to miss a few weeks um, and you're going to be okay. Um, but I think the other side of it um, is it does teach you a lot about the types of things that you should avoid and the types of things that can um, can help prevent 
um, prevent that happening again. And I mean, I definitely learnt so much from Drew. He was a huge influence on on my um, on my career, um, and very lucky to you know be able to have someone like him around who had been through some really some really tough experiences with his back and the creative ways that he went about um, you know making his body stronger. Yeah, and like we often speak about like injuries. Uh, I think injuries are like, they're very different from like, uh, uh, if you just take time off, like if you took the same time off doing, uh, doing nothing, then you, then when you have an injury, like you, the injury often like focuses you and like points you in one direction. And like, it's, it's all about getting better. And then it's just it's this process of, of yeah. getting back online. And then like the, it also like, I think the, the mental side of it, of that element then can really put you in a really good place once the body comes back, back online. online. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's that ability to bounce back better than before um, Mm. that challenges not just doing the same thing every day because that's what you've always done. You're forced to think differently, think more creatively and find a different solution to the problem. And that's essentially what you're asked to do in a big big regatta because um, you're problem solving constantly. Yeah, and um, getting back, uh, after talking about all all the injuries, so we, we, we just finished in 2014. 2015, you had another perfect year. You, you went through that year, won a gold medal in all the World Cups, and you were world champion again. So you're, you're, you qualified for the Olympics, and you were world champion. So it was a really good stepping stone going into 2016. And then 2016, chat to us a bit about the feelings of, of going into the Olympic year with being a world champion. You said earlier that... Um, you know, you, you in 2013, one of the things you had to deal with was the pressure uh, of of um, of that you didn't really have to deal with before. Now, 2016, it's almost more focused because, like you said, the Olympic year media attention turns up a little bit more on on the rowing athletes, um, which don't usually have to deal with too much um, in prior years. So, chat to us a bit about that. Yeah, I think in it. In some ways, the 2014 year was hugely protective come 2016. So I remember in 2014 just feeling that intensity of pressure and that feeling that um, if I didn't win, I'd be letting everyone down, I'd be letting my coach down, I'd be letting my country down, you know, rowing wouldn't get as much funding and that would be my fault and I'd be letting my family down and it would be an absolute disaster and the world would fall apart. Anyway, race the final don't win the race and realise that the world doesn't fall apart. Um, My family still loved me. Um, My friends were still friends with me. My coach still wanted to coach me. Um, People didn't hate me. And it was kind of just that realisation that this was a thing that I'd made up in my head that was not remotely a reflection on reality. Um, And I think that gave me the freedom to realise that I could go out there and do my best and whatever that result would be, um, the people who mattered to me would still care for me just as much. Um, and, and I think one of the, um, one of the things someone said to me, it was James Tompkins said, um, you can line up in a race and you can want to win, but you can't need to win. Um, and I, I think that's right. Um, because wanting to win is exciting and it's um, exhilarating and it's that, you know, thrill of opportunity, whereas needing to win is 
you know, fear and threat and, you know, you can already feel your body tensing up and getting scared and the anxieties coming in around, oh, you know, what if this happens and what if that happens, rather than just letting yourself go out there and showcase everything that you've trained yourself to do. Yeah, I think that's that's a huge that's a huge aspect around racing in general. I mean, just getting on the water. The worst part for me is is the the warm up on the water before the actual race. It's just I just feel like the anxiety and the nerves just focus in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a big thing for for athletes is the ability to handle that kind of pressure um, going going into any race, even even if it's not at the Olympics. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's some serious wisdom there. From uh, James Tompkins, I'm yeah. sure uh, that's another huge role model to to add into the into your repertoire. I'm sure as you were you're growing up, the talk about the the 2016 Olympics. Um, I know uh, obviously the weather was a bit crazy there, so that's going to be a big theme of of that uh, of that racing that week. I mean, uh, we race in the pairs. I think. We were the the event after you guys in the in the heat, uh, and one of our the guys in our race fell in the water. So talk us through that heat and and dealing with the the rough water, and because uh, that was a very tr- tricky race for you. Yeah, so look, it was it really was. I'd actually um, I'd gone over to Rio um, and and trained a couple of years earlier. Um, I I trained with Fabiana Beltrame, who was the um, the Brazilian lightweight single sculler. Um, and so I had experienced what that lake could do. <laughs> um, and I actually went home um, from that experience and said, right, I've got to do a heap of training in rough water and we need to find a boat um, that can that can handle those conditions. And the boat I had been rowing in, um, I, because I'm quite tall, my, my weight um, is a fair bit towards the bow, which means that the where the fin is placed um, does not have a huge amount of coverage, which made it very hard to steer, um, which in flat water was no problem at all. And I loved the boat. It was, it was a fast boat. But in rough conditions, I essentially couldn't steer it. Um, so we got to the Olympic Games and I actually had two boats with me. I had a, um, a calm water boat um, and I had a rough water boat. Um, and the morning of the heat, um, the conditions were absolutely pristine. Um, I get on the water um, to warm up about 30 minutes before racing um, and it's a mill pond. There's, there's not a, a single sign of any wind or, or rough, rough water and I, I jump in in my um, calm water boat. So, uh, um, so to inter to interrupt there, um, what are the what are the two different boats, and then and was there like a big feeling? Was there a big difference? Like, did you when you rode the to the two boats? Did you have to adjust uh, any of your, or were you just kind of uh, standard standard rig. stuff? Um, they they were quite different in the feel of how you rode them. It's the the smaller boat was a lot more. Um, banana shaped and so a lot more responsive it gave you such a good feeling of run um, off the finish of the stroke um, but it also gave you that feeling of a fair bit of slowing down if you weren't um, if you weren't really dynamic through the front turn and I loved the feedback that 
that boat gave me. So, and that's the boat that I'd been rowing for the entire Olympic cycle. Um, so it was definitely my, you know, a bit closer to my heart. Um, the other boat was um, a flatter, a flatter boat, um, and you know, it was it was built up higher as well, um, and you know, a larger fin was a lot more stable. Um, I didn't feel it gave me the same feedback when I was rowing, but it stayed its course a lot better in rougher water and really withstood um, any kind of um, waves or, or crosswind conditions. And so I did have to row it a little bit differently, um, but it far outperformed the other okay. one in, did they, in the rough water. Were they so. from the, the same boat company? Uh, yes, so Empaka okay. um, okay. made, made both the boats, cool. um, and the the second one was was built for for purpose for okay. um, for that particular regatta. Okay, oh, that's cool. so uh, that's yeah, it's pretty cool that you you had the the two boats. Yeah, I know uh, Mahi also tried a whole lot of different boats uh, through the season. I don't know if he had the, I don't think he had two at uh, at Rio, but he definitely raced in a lot of different shapes uh, through the year to to get the right one um so sorry the right let, one. let's go back yeah, so, to to that uh, that heat there so i get on the water i'm in my calm water boat um 15 minutes into the warm-up and it blows up and my boat is full of water um and i i had a sponge with me and i started bailing water out of the boat and i remember seeing i think it was jevy stone um and we had a quick chat and they're like oh they'll they'll cancel racing but they didn't of course um and line up on the start line my boat is already full of water before we start um but get through the race and i just remember one point in the race where i'm perpendicular to the course um thinking oh my gosh i've got to get myself straightened back in um back in the lane um, surprisingly at the time, I wasn't particularly, I was just trying to get to the finish line as, as quickly as I yes. could, um, as quickly as you can with a boat full of water. Um, during the race, I actually think I did a reasonable job of focusing on the task at hand, um, which is, you know, surprising when you watch it and you think, like, oh, you know, the, the favourites come third, but all things considered, uh, I, I was actually reasonably happy um, with with how I'd gone. I was frustrated with the race organisers for having us race in those conditions, um, but I kind of didn't take it too hard because the easy solution was I would have been fine in my other boat, um, so I'll just row my other boat in the future just in case. Um, and... Um, yeah, you know, move on to the quarterfinal and fix it up there. So what is interesting about that experience is I actually found it um, quite positive in that I've just been given this opportunity in a heat to make a mistake um, and it not to um, impair my my chances. I just felt so lucky that that hadn't been the final. Um, and... So, and, and I get off the water and my coach is great and he's like, oh, yeah, that was, you know, not the best race you've ever done, but um, let's go for another row this afternoon and let's think about this and let's think about that and let's use the other boat. And um, it was kind of all done. Um, it's interesting coming back and realising how tense and um, how big a deal that 
was for people watching the event, um, particularly as one of the first sports mm. on the Olympic program and it's just after the opening ceremony and, um, you know, everyone in Australia is watching it. And, I, I mean, I had no idea at the yes. time. It's just like, oh, you know, well, I've qualified through to the quarterfinal, not the best race I've ever done, but, hey, I'll get another chance to do better. So, yes. I mean, it's, a, um, it's just pretty similar for us as well because, um, and I think people didn't realise how bad the water actually was because i mean as i say we were the event after you we must have been a a race or two after you and i remember trying to warm up and like we couldn't even string together our like our builds and sean is like telling me no we're gonna have they're gonna call the regatta and i'm like telling him no the the women's singles are racing down the track now (laughs) like this is this is on like we need to be ready and go and (laughs) get out there and race this thing (laughs) And it was And I think, so to be honest, wild. that is probably the most frustrating, most frustrating thing is that it doesn't look that bad on TV. And I cannot count the number of people since the Olympics who have given me advice on how to row in rough water. And it's just one of those things that you, you sort of, you, you sit there and it's like, oh, thanks, that's a really great tip. I'll take it on board. Um, but it's, you know, it was... Your boat was underwater. Yeah. It was really hard to, to take a stroke. And it, it was a very different sport to the sport that we train ourselves for. Um, and, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you. I think, you know, in any non-Olympic um, situation, I suspect it probably would have been cancelled. But I guess um, it also is a good lesson that, you know, in the future that's probably the way – it's going to go and yeah. and maybe we do need to think more about different equipment and um you know different strategies and getting out a surf boat for for those sort of conditions yeah and i mean it's yeah i mean i think it's 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 just wild i mean that racing was but well, again it also madness. was as you said you were quite calm getting off the water i mean we i think we also finished third in our heat and it was it, it because the water was so wild, it wasn't like, oh, this is how we're going to race. Like, it was, we, we did the job, we got through the, the semi, I mean, the, the heat, and now it's on to, to the racing. Like, uh, I think it, because the water was rough, it didn't really affect the, like, the mental place that, that uh, athletes were in Yeah. as much. Yeah, it was just, oh, that happened, um, let's get ready for the next race. Um, so yeah, oh that's that's um, nice to know I've got some company. <laughs> yeah, well I mean it's another thing we've been talking about is just that because it's Olympic Games, I mean like it's not a rowing world champs. This is a it's a global event with a lot of other sporting codes. So often you, at world champs, you know you have dedicated rowing courses that have been selected and built purposely, you know, for rowing course. Whereas at the Olympic Games, you know you don't always have conveniently a really good rowing course where the Olympic Games is getting hosted. So um even though i i would say that the rio course was amazing to to race at but i mean the weather you have to be prepared as an athlete for you know at the olympic games you got to understand that you know if you there's a good chance you're going to row in a place where it might not be ideal for for rowers although i i i love i mean i guess i was an immense four so i it wasn't <laughs> as as bad as as a single lower pair but yeah it's it's just a, a good lesson learned yeah and then um 2016 you 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 get through all that mess of the heat and, and getting through the rough conditions but then you come up to the final and uh chat to us a bit about that final race i mean you had really hot competition there you had Ginevra stone who was really on form you had emma twig 
Um, Miroslava Napkova, who was the champion in London earlier. And then you also had Jingli Don, who was also uh, really on form from China. And, and of course, like China doesn't spend so much time racing at the World Cup. So you, you never really know where they're going to come up against it. So chat us about, what about that final Olympic race and, of course, winning your, your, your gold medal. I think the thing was for the Olympic final, the aim for the whole four-year cycle wasn't actually a gold medal. The aim for the four-year cycle was to have the best race that I was capable of on finals day. Um, and that, so it was almost like the competition was there to help me have my best race. Um, so it was more an opportunity than a threat. Um, and I just remember being so excited that the time had finally come to, to show everything that I'd learnt and, you know, showcase all the training that I'd done um, and finally put down that race that everything had been working towards. And it was actually, you know, it was interesting because in the lead up, in those four years leading up, I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be so nervous for the Olympic final, I'd better practice being nervous. So at every, you know, local camper regatta, I'd try and work myself into this absolute tears of nerves of, you know, just, oh, my gosh, this is pretend you're at the Olympics. Gosh, you're nervous. It's, um, and, you know, it's hard to do. But the idea being that I was so sure that I would be absolutely shitting my pants at the start of the Olympic final. But it was actually the opposite because by the time I got to the start line at the Olympic final, I just had that feeling within myself that I'd done everything I could have hoped to have done to prepare myself for this day. Every session that I'd done, I'd approached it with, you know, that intensity of focus that I would want to take to a race, making sure that I was paying attention to each stroke and making each stroke better than the one before. And so I was sitting on the start line with that real freedom of um, there was nothing more I could have done. I am in the best um, the best physical, mental, emotional state I could hope to be. So here's my opportunity to see how fast I can go. Um, and I was just so clear in my mind as to what I was going to do in that race and how I was going to row my boat that it was, you know, it really was a quite surreal experience for definitely the first half of the race. I think I got brought back down to the the rowing course when I nearly steered out of my lane um, in the second half. Um, but until then, it was it was very much, you know, really in that moment of um, this is everything that I've trained for. Oh, that's really, really cool. And I think that just sums up an uh, Olympic final mm. uh, and like also executed to, to perfection really, really well. So um, really, really cool. And also that's the, the first gold medal uh, for Australia since your husband won uh, the gold and the double back in 2008. So just a little cherry on yeah, top almost. On top. <laughs> yeah, look, it was. And it's actually, I mean, the similarity that the two races had is is quite uncanny in, um, you know, a really dynamic start. And it is actually interesting looking back on the race data of that Olympic final. Um, the first half of the race was... Um, you know, it was absolutely the the best first half of a race I've ever done by a significant margin, <laughs> um, and and I think that there was something that I I really had 
um, I'd always looked up to Scott and David um, so much um, in their approach and it was always that that I was trying to mirror. Um, and so, you know, a very, a very special thing to, you know, eight years later to be able to finally get there. And I mean, also just to, it's just like summed up the, that whole Olympic cycle from, uh, from 2013, that first uh, season and to, and then to just string it all together and be able to, to put your, your best race out there. And I really love the, when you speak about like the goal is not to win, the goal is to, to put your best race out at the Olympic a final. Mm. I mean, that's everyone's dream basically. And then to, to come away with the win must've just been really, really special after that. Yeah, it, it was. Um, it was a little bit of a, a strange moment of crossing the finish line. And because I had been there a couple of years earlier and had sat in that spot post the finish line, I'd visualised what that would be like so many times that when it actually happened, it was just like what I'd visualised. And so it almost could have been just the night before where I'm up all night and my, you know, racing the race over and over in my head. And it was just like another time. And so it was kind of just a little bit of a pinch yourself. Was that actually it? Um, which, you know, you hear people say, and you think that's ridiculous, but um, it did actually seem a bit surreal. Oh, really, really awesome. And just such a, such a cool career as well I mean yeah. just to go from that that first uh, Olympics where it was was really really tough and not going your way to then finish off on on the perfect note yeah I think it's a it's if you, if you I think if you if you looked at this as some sort of script to a movie I think the whole formula would fit quite nicely <laughs> towards the end but um, anyway Kim we're going to come into the, the conclusion of our interview where we asked every we ask every guest on the show our quick fire questions they are uh, the same questions we ask to everyone, and um, you can answer them however you want to. You can uh, take whatever interpretation you want. So, yeah. Lawrence, what's and, the first uh, one? And often they, they're not that quick. <laughs> no, they're not that quick, but <laughs> that's okay too. It does, doesn't have to be quick either. So, um, this is going to be interesting, seeing as you've raced basically all the boat classes. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, the first question is, if you could race any boat class at the Olympic Games, what would it be and why? Ooh. Well, I would actually like, and there's a bit of a story behind this, but I'd like to race in the men's quad. Um, and the reason I say that is in 2016, um, the the Australian men's quad um, had a member of their boat who was injured for a good portion of time. Um, and I filled in in their crew. And I think that was one of the, the best um the best learning experiences. Um, I just learned so much about, um, you know, being dynamic in a boat, moving in a boat, a different rhythm, a different flow. Um, and it was just the way that boat moves and how a race feels um, was incredible. And the experience to actually be able to race a 2K race in that boat, um, I, I would just love that experience. Jeez, yeah, that's, that's a good answer that's the first time we've heard um someone taking a, a boat from the opposite uh, um opposite gender so really really cool answer there um the Which next is gonna this is gonna make the next question this is gonna make the next question even better so the next one is if you could choose any three people from any time and from anywhere in the world to race a coxless quad with who would your three crewmates be and why 
Oh, I think we'll have to go for a bit of symmetry here. And um, so say my husband's got Brennan um, and then Peter Anthony and Stephen Hawkins. So um, Stephen and Peter won the double um, in 92 and um, Stephen lived just around the corner from Scott and was the person who really inspired Scott um, to go on and chase an Olympic dream and gave him that feeling within himself that he could be a champion. Um, and Peter Anthony um, in the same double for me was was very much that person as someone who took me under his wing from the moment I started rowing um, and really gave me that that belief that I could go on and do something special. Um, so it would be um, it would be pretty cool to get um, the two parts of that double back together and 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 jump in a boat with um with my husband. That would be very cool. That would be awesome. That would be an awesome, well-rounded quad day. I just I'm just interested. Have you ever jumped into a double with uh, with Scott before? Considering you both have uh, quite a lot of experience in the double. Um, yeah, we have actually, um, both before and after uh, we got married, um, and we're still married. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, um, <laughs> we we actually have quite different um, different rowing techniques. It was um, an interesting uh, interesting process in communication. But the second time I um, I jumped in a double with Scott was actually um, it was after I'd been to to Rio for the first time um, and realised how rough the water could be. And Scotty is an absolute genius in rough water. It's his his specialty, sort of growing up, rowing on the Derwent. Um, and I'm like, right, we're going out in a double and you're going to teach me how to do this. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a bit of history there. That's, very, a, very that's cool. an awesome story. Yeah, that's yeah, very cool. Um, the, the next question is, what is your favourite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be one of your races. It can be any rowing race. Oh, um, to be honest, I think I'd have to say my favourite rowing race is um, Scott and David winning the double in um, in two thousand and eight Beijing. It's a it's a cracker. Yeah, and also you. I mean, you you've mentioned it uh, a few times just chatting to us. So it's obviously. Has a big a big, uh, a yeah. big impact on uh, on your performance and uh, and how you approached uh, racing. Yeah. Over here. So the next question, Kim. I know that you you deputy deputy chair on the athletes commission. So the, I thought I think you got to give a, quite an interesting answer to this one. This question is: um, If you were in charge at World Rowing, what would you change? Oh, how fun would that be? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I look. I'm a. I actually. I think we could be more creative and more open to trying different things. I mean, I'd love to see. Um, I mean, I'd love to see an erg race at the Olympics. I'd love to see. Um, I'd love to see ocean rowing. I'd love to see a head race, so like a river race, a long distance race. Um, I, I think. There are a lot of features of our sport that just make for really passionate viewing and racing. And, and I, I think that I really believe that rowing does need to keep its 
keep its core. I don't think we should be selling out for, you know, just doing 250 metre races because they're short and sharp. Um, There could be a sprint component in the regatta, but I think, you know, one of the special things about our sport is how how tough it is and the challenge of a 2,000 metre rowing race that makes our sport quite unique from other sports. And I think that's an important core to keep. Um, But I do think that there are ways to really engage the broader public in a way that maybe we don't do if we just race um, a number of different boat classes over 2,000 metres. Yeah, and like I mean, we we often uh, chat and like say like it could you could change those things like during the year. It doesn't necessarily the Olympics doesn't need to change. Maybe uh, I remember yeah, Olaf yeah. saying that like the Olympics should stay the the gladiator events, yeah. but like the rest of the year can can bring all these other events in that would really build up the hype and build up the the, the interest in the in the sport. Yeah, and I think someone I, I can't remember who mentioned it. Um, I should go back and check, but. One of the suggestions that someone came up with is like, um, for example, like one at the first World Cup, maybe the the rules are okay. No, everyone's going to enter into the into the pair. Everyone's going to enter into the pair, and you're going to race a thousand five hundred meters. And you know, we see what happens. See how cool would that be? Yeah, it would be awesome. It's always so fast, and you see people split over a number of different boat classes. And wouldn't you love to just know how you know? someone in the pair would go against you yeah. know, people who are racing in the four or the eight and just like who, who are your champions i think it's a fascinating concept yeah. and actually it's like i mean uh chatting to to heather from the the, the british pair then yeah. there was such a, and helen so it was such a, a a crucial moment when uh we the the usa women's eight got into the pair yeah and all four of them came uh second to fifth and they still managed to win that that regatta so it was like that was just like highlights that point of like having everyone in in one boat to know who's the the real champion yeah 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 i love it so the next question is um what is your 2k pb on the erg and i know you said you you didn't um spend much much time in the in the last cycle on the erg but i'm pretty sure you're gonna throw out some some big numbers here (laughs) i uh, so this goes back to i think 2011 i did a 626 Wow, that is outrageously <laughs> fast. That's really, That's really And I didn't go anywhere near that fast between 2012 and 2016. That is, that's some serious speed. I mean, that's what's a what's the the world, world record, record is 22. Yes, that's that's outrageous. Yeah, that's that's cool. really close. The Aussies, uh, they just yeah. dish up. Uh, yeah, something going on. The Australians are really good on the Ugo. Eh? Aussies and, sure. uh, and, and the Zealanders. Yeah. That's that's power. Um, because I mean, I I read a thing the other day that how many of the the world records are held by Australians, Australians and New Zealanders. Yeah, I mean, it's like six of the world records. Yeah, that's some crazy stuff. Um, so the last question, Kim, is if you had to choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, what would it be and why? Ooh, <sighs> gee, that's a that's a tough one. I I mean I. I'd kind of love to do the cycling road race. I wouldn't be very good at it because I'm much too big, but I do love cycling and I just think, you know, that the team nature of that sport and just the 
I mean, they, they come in from all of their different professional teams and then form together in a national team and have to work out the dynamics of who's going to be team leader and how it's going to work. I mean, even going and being a domestique for, for someone in the, in the road race, um, I think would be, would be pretty cool. Yeah, not the, I was I was expecting the four hundred the four hundred meters uh four hundred meter hurdles was gonna be the the one. Yeah, well, I, I just um I think I've come to the realization that uh, maybe that wasn't the best sport for me, and it was an absolute blessing that I got shown a different sport that maybe better suited my um my physical attributes and my personality. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no fast twitch farther left. Yeah, yeah, you've uh, left that behind. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well yeah, yeah, Kim, that's uh, that's a wrap for for all the questions out there um, and all all the things you wanted to chat about. Um, we've had an all, awesome conversation. I mean, Lawrence and I learned so much when we were talking to guests, and this was just another 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 uh, interview where so much wisdom, so much value coming out of uh, what you were what you've been talking about. Is there, is there anything else you would like to, to add? Anything else that we maybe we missed that uh, interesting fact somewhere along the way? No, I, I think you did an exceptional job. And, um, yeah, thank you for some, some really, uh, some really um, tough and interesting questions. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we just really, really enjoyed it. So thanks again for, for so much of your time. Hi, thank you very much. And, um, and well done on your show. It's, um, it's a great initiative. Yeah, guys, that's uh, that's a wrap for the Kim Brennan episode. And uh, I can tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Kim. And I think the, the biggest takeaway for me is just uh, what a thug. She is literally, um, you know, what one of the hardest, if not the hardest training athlete that, uh, that the sport has seen. And I think there's a lot of value that you could take from the episode and apply to your own training, whether that be for lead drawing or club level or whatever but yeah awesome episode yeah i love the part uh, where she starts talking about a, a normal day in the in the life of kim and i mean the, the, the list of training that she went off there i'm not sure if she's uh, got a little bit of the the retired eyes you know when you think back old athletes when they think back to to some of the training <laughs> that they did they add a little bit of spice but i mean that was the most insane day of training ever it's basically like a yeah, I was like, what, nine hours? Nine, nine, nine hours of trading, start to finish. Yeah. That is flat box. And then, uh, as you said, and wonder why all her, her partners were breaking ribs. Um, <laughs> just trying to keep up with her. But yeah, really, really cool. Really impressive. And just such an epic athlete. I mean, such an inspiration to, to be able to chat to her and, and, and learn those secrets. Yeah. But yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a wrap for us, guys. We've got the racing coming up this weekend. So like Lawrence said, uh, stay uh, stay glued to your phones for that and uh, besides that obviously give us a review on iTunes or, or wherever you can give us a review it really helps with how um, the algorith algorithms work and uh, helps get the show out there um, and get it to the, the front page of whatever platform it's on so that always helps and then always the feedback is fantastic this like Lauren said this episode was one of the most highly requested episodes so keep sending in those requests because it's always great to hear what the people want so that we can give it to you. Yeah, well, yes. Cool, guys. Enjoy your days and we'll chat soon. Cheers. Adios.
sick. Another one done. Tops, dude. Sweet. That was really cool. Yeah, that was awesome.